Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, and I will read. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, rejoice, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so reads the word of the living God. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, I became increasingly convinced that First Peter, and tonight's passage in particular, might be one of the most timely and important messages for us today. Why do I say that? Why would a letter written over two th- about 2,000 years ago be very timely today? The drastic change over the last 2,000 years of culture and technology and the events that have happened, it can cause us to see the, uh, the events and the concepts in the Bible as significantly different than we are today. But in fact, the issues that confront us today are the exact same. And in the last couple years in particular, we have seen that we may soon be living in a time that is a lot like Peter's, a lot like the situation into which Peter wrote. We know that Peter was writing to believers who were experiencing persecution. And we know all about Nero in Rome and what he did to the believers to make them a scapegoat for the fires that he likely set. But remember that Peter was writing from Rome, but he wasn't writing to Rome. Peter was writing to Asia Asia Minor. And in Asia Minor, there wasn't yet a policy of empire-wide automatic persecution that would come, but The evidence from the historians seems to show a situation where persecution at this time was actually localized, and it was sporadic. It was kind of like right now with coronavirus restrictions. We have a completely different situation in Canada versus Los Angeles versus Texas, and it comes down to what governor you live under. And at the time, that seems to be more of the situation. Some areas had severe persecution. And some, it was more, uh, still persecution, but it wasn't as severe. 
And also at the time, an important thing is that Christians weren't yet being persecuted simply for being Christians, at least not in Asia Minor. Peter wasn't writing to a situation where confessing Christ was an automatic death sentence. And so while the believer's persecution and suffering at this time could certainly be intense and even life-threatening, we notice that in 1 Peter, that's not the primary danger, threat, or suffering that he addresses. We just do a quick survey of the book. In chapter 1, verse 6, he just describes them as being grieved by various trials. And then in 2.12, he says that they would be slandered spoken against, and called evildoers. In 2.19, they might suffer injustices. 2.20, perhaps beatings. In 2.23 and 3.16, revilings. In 4.4, being thought strange, perhaps being mocked. In 4.4, again, being maligned. And then in 4.14, being insulted. So it's very interesting to notice that the primary forms of suffering that Peter describes is verbal abuse, is mistreatment, is discrimination, social ostracization, thank you, Uh, and occasionally, yes, physical harm or even death. But this was not yet any official government policy. It was unpredictable. And instead of this minimizing the importance of First Peter's message, I would argue that it actually raises its importance. Because it, this is maybe one of the hardest circumstances actually to be faithful under. What do I mean? It means that in many ways, in this time that First Peter was writing as well as today, the depth of the believer's suffering would correspond directly to their fervency and their faithfulness. Or on the other hand, their suffering would be limited by their silence. And a person at this time could be a believer and live a more or less peaceful and prosperous life, provided they never spoke the truth, provided they didn't let their light shine too brightly, provided their conduct wasn't too distinctive. And it wouldn't even at this time have required any formal denial of Christ. So do you see how important this is for us today? The Christians at that time were maligned. They were called antisocial because they refused to take part in the pagan ceremonies. And because they weren't at those ceremonies, they would have missed out on all sorts of important social and business connections. They would have been out of the inner circle. They wouldn't have been around when the deals were made. And they were called atheists because they didn't worship visible idols. They were called cannibals because the pagans misunderstood the Lord's Supper. And they were called strange because they refused to take part in the same sin as their neighbors, their co-workers, their bosses, their authorities, their family members, and their former friends. And as any of you know, even if not physical persecution, these are immense pressures. And are they any different from today when we are called hateful, homophobic, or transphobic simply for speaking the truth to our neighbors, 
or when we're overlooked and excluded at the workplace, when we're not given promotions on the contracts because we weren't at the parties when those contracts were given, when the deals were made. And even beyond that, we increasingly see how even today in America, physical and legal suffering looms. And we see the very real possibility of losing our businesses or our livelihoods for standing for truth. We see the possibility on the horizon of imprisonment, maybe of beatings, maybe even of death. And I don't need to tell any of you, I'm sure, of the pressure to compromise, the pressure to remain silent, the pressure to do whatever we can under those pressures to minimize the suffering. So First Peter is for us. First Peter is for the 21st century. First Peter is for the West. It's for Los Angeles. First Peter is for Grace Community Church. It's for you, and it's for me. Because we must remain faithful under persecution and pressure, whether that is physical, financial, or social, whether it is lawsuits, imprisonments, beatings, or death, or even just mockery. And so we'll see today how we must respond to suffering and how how we respond will prove or disprove the genuineness of our faith. And it will increase or decrease our eternal reward. And so there are a few things more important than that we learn early how to properly think about and respond to and behave under suffering and opposition. So today I want to give you from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, five responses to suffering. Five reflexes that we have to develop if we would suffer well. And these are to recognize the purpose, rejoice in the result, repent of sin, remember the end, and resolve to obey. Recognize, rejoice, repent, remember, and resolve. The five responses to suffering from 1 Peter. Peter wrote to people suffering increased social pressure who were on the brink of severe and widespread physical suffering, imprisonment, and torture for their faith. And tonight, the living God is speaking to us all through Peter's words to a people experiencing increased social pressure. And with the rapid pace of societal changes, to a people possibly on the brink of imprisonment and physical suffering ourselves. So let us look now for the night at these five responses to suffering from 1 Peter. First, verse 12. As I said, the first response is to recognize the purpose of your suffering. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So with this address, with this passage tonight, Peter's beginning to draw the letter to a close. He calls them beloved first to get their attention, to pause, regroup them, and to focus emphasis and attention on the words that are about to follow. But also, Peter is reminding them that they are beloved. 
And it's easy in suffering to begin to question if we really are loved. So he says, beloved, don't consider your suffering strange. Why would Peter say this? Why would he say not to consider our suffering strange? Well, there's nothing more contrary to our human nature than suffering. So it's very normal to ask, if God loves me, why am I going through this? And we see similar cries of lament all throughout the Psalms. So Peter says, you are loved and don't consider this strange. Instead, recognize the purpose of your suffering. First, recognize that your suffering, this fiery trial, is purposed by God. It is planned by him. Your suffering is not by chance, and it isn't pointless. Where do we see this? You see how he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And we hear a lot of people talking about, well, is he, is he saying they were being burned uh, in, in the torches? But more than any of that, when you see the words fiery trial, it should point your attention back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 4, where Peter says, you rejoice, even though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested or tried by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So by calling this a fiery trial, Peter is saying, hey, don't forget the purpose of your suffering. This is a fiery trial. It's a refining trial. Yes, it is hot. And yes, it is painful, but it's proving you. And it's demonstrating that you are truly his. Remember that the seed that fell on the rocky soil that was not a true believer, it fell away, withered, and died under suffering. And so your suffering, if you are a true believer, is proving that you are genuine, that you're real, and that your faith is gold. Your suffering proves that you are his. So this fiery trial, first and foremost, it has a purpose. And don't forget that purpose, which is to prove and test and show the genuineness of your faith. But also, secondly, this fiery trial doesn't just prove your faith. It also purifies your heart. So just as gold and silver are refined and purified in a fire... So the genuineness of your faith is strengthened and refined and purified in the fires of suffering. These are the purposes of this fiery trial. These are the reasons. They are not pointless. God never brings pointless or meaningless or purposeless suffering into our lives. They prove and purify our faith, which Paul says, if you remember, is more valuable than gold or silver. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And what is a little bit of suffering if it proves that we've gained all in Christ? So the one who is in Christ possesses everything. So we have to remember this purpose. And we can't think it's strange. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus told us this would happen. Jesus told us ahead of time the, the centrality of suffering in the Christian life. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And that doesn't sounds a lot like Peter tonight. Luke 9, 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as one of its own. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So beloved, this is what we are called to. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We are not called to a life of ease any more than our Savior and King was. And we must follow him outside the camp and suffer with him if we would reign with him. And to any new believers, I know that there's so many people attending foundation just in the last few months. And maybe some of you have been Christians only a very short time. And I think what I would say and what we would all want to say is, do you realize that this is what you've been called to? It will be worth it, but you have to count the cost. But it will be worth it. And if we count the cost, it will help us to endure through it. So to endure suffering rightly, to recap the first point, we must remember the purpose of that suffering. And finally, what we can't miss is this. Your your suffering is purposed by God specifically. Not only is your suffering not pointless, but your suffering is not by chance. If you look at the end of the verse, Peter says, Don't think it's strange. Don't think that some strange thing is just happening to you. This isn't just happening by chance. We must remember that our suffering is perfectly planned by God, and we will not endure one moment of suffering more than he, in his perfect wisdom, has deemed just right. And his perfect love is in control of every moment of any suffering that we face because we are his beloved. So first, recognize the purpose of all of your suffering. It purifies and refines and proves your faith, and all of it is perfectly planned by him. But second, we move on to verses 13 and 14. Here he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the second response is to rejoice in the result of our suffering because our suffering glorifies God And to that extent, our suffering increases our own glory and joy at his return. Think back to chapter 1, verse 7 for a moment. There, Peter says, the the result of our faith, enduring through suffering, is praise and glory 
and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here Peter says that to the extent that you share in Christ's sufferings now, you will also share in his joy and glory when he returns. And so we must set our hope fully on this grace to be revealed and to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to the extent that we have actually set our hope on this joy to be brought at his return, to that same extent, will we be able to rejoice in suffering? It's like a game or a battle when we, we endure so much at the prospect of victory, knowing that it will all pay off when we either win or if it's a battle, the honor and reward, the glory and the peace that comes with victory. And with Christ, we have the added benefit of knowing how the war ends. So we have to keep our eyes on that day when not only is our striving over, but when he returns with gifts and rewards to give to all of his faithful. So the result of our suffering is that it glorifies God and it increases our eternal joy. That's the first result that we rejoice in. But next, look at what Peter says in verse 13. He says, you share insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That we share Christ's sufferings. And I want to take a moment to talk about this aspect of our suffering and about this result of our suffering. What does it mean that we share Christ's sufferings. At various places throughout the New Testament, the writers speak of sharing in Christ's sufferings. In Colossians 1.24, Peter says, I mean, Paul says that in his flesh, in Paul's flesh, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And in Acts, when Paul was persecuting Christians, Jesus said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul or you or I are in any way adding to the work of Christ. But as we are in him, and as we suffer for him and with him, the reproaches which would have fallen on him falls on us. And as the world hated him, Jesus said, so the world hates us, and we share in his sufferings. He is in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand. But we, his body, are on earth, sharing in his sufferings. And I don't want you to miss the significance of this blessing and and that it is a blessing. And I want to amplify that for us for a moment. Say, how is sharing in Christ's sufferings a cause for rejoicing? How is sharing in his sufferings a cause of rejoicing? I would argue this, that by sharing in the sufferings of Christ, we have a brief, momentary opportunity to understand a tiny sliver of what he suffered for us. Elsewhere, Paul calls his own life of immense suffering a light, momentary affliction compared to the length and glory of eternity, and it was Next to eternity, life is short, very short. And believer, your life is going to end sooner than you expect. I'm only in my early 30s, and it's amazing to look back at how quickly the decades fly by and 
still feel like you're 19, but you're not. And you have only a very short time on this earth to share in Christ's sufferings. And you will have instead an eternity to wish you could have shared and suffered and sacrificed more for him. No matter how severe or long your suffering will be, and Paul suffered immensely for many years, no matter how long or severe your life of suffering might be, it will one day be over. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your broken bones or broken hearts will be perfectly renewed. And whatever physical suffering was endured in this life, you will be spotless and blameless before him. And you will never again experience sorrow or sadness or rejection or loss or suffering of any kind. All suffering will be gone and only a faint memory But by suffering for and with Christ in this life, you will be able to understand a tiny glimpse of what he suffered for you in full. You will be spotless and blameless in eternity, and all scars will be gone. But have you ever considered that the only person with scars in eternity will be Christ? And as you go to him and he wipes away every tear from your eyes with his nail-pierced hands, It will only be your memories of your own scars that let you really experientially understand what he went through for you to wipe away your scars. The only way we know that is sharing in his suffering in this life for just a moment. We have just a moment to gain this fellowship with Christ, the fellowship of his suffering, and to understand his suffering just even a little bit that he suffered for us so that he could sympathize with us as our great high priest. So beloved, my word is don't lose heart. No matter how long you've suffered or no matter how severe, it will be over. And soon, very soon. Some of us are new believers and we have to count the cost. Some of us have been believers for quite a while and suffered and lost and we become weary and we have to not only Remember and recognize the purpose of our suffering, but rejoice in its result and look to that result and be strengthened by that. Third, verse 15, is to repent of remaining sin. Verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So here, Peter briefly mentions the possibly difficult possibility that your suffering might not necessarily be a result of suffering for righteousness. And we have to remember that, that when we are suffering because we ourselves have done wrong, we shouldn't call it persecution. And so suffering is an opportunity for us to evaluate. It's an opportunity to repent of sin, to evaluate our conduct, and to heed Peter's commands. Peter's already introduced this idea earlier in the book. In chapter 2, verse 20, he says, what credit is it 
if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. In that case, you're not doing anything righteous. You're just enduring the natural repercussions of your own sin, of your own rebellion. And so to this end, Peter includes all the many commands throughout the book to reject sin and to pursue righteousness, to survey some of them. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or 2.13, be subject to every human institution for their very purpose is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Or 2.16, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. 2.18, be subject to all masters, whether just or unjust. In chapter 3, in the home, wives be subject to your husbands, husbands honor your wives and Later in verse 3, to everyone, have unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, and humility. Return evil for good. And finally, in 3.15, maybe especially important to those of us who are passionate about the truth, to those proclaiming and defending the faith in 3.15, do it with gentleness and respect. So are we living these ways? And suffering gives us an opportunity to evaluate our lives, and to make sure that we are above reproach. So I'd want to ask us tonight, if these things describe us, are we described by humility, by not being busybodies, by loving others, by returning good for evil, by not slandering, by not gossiping? Or are we overlooked at work simply because we have a bad work ethic? Or perhaps we really do need further training and experience. Maybe your coworkers didn't invite you to lunch because, just because you're rude or you always talk about yourself. And sometimes we can be all too quick to assume that suffering is unjust. And Peter calls us here to remember that we do need to make sure that our conduct is pure, as pure as possible, so that no charge can be brought against us, so that the only suffering we endure is what's for righteousness' sake. So Peter tells us to straighten what is crooked and to repent of remaining sin. We move from there to verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18, which is our fourth point, which is remember the end. Remember the end. The fourth response to suffering is remember the end. Let me read for you verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, for me at least, this is somewhat of a confusing verse at first. Initially, these two verses uh, didn't really make sense. What does it mean that is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. First, we need to realize that the word judgment here is not condemnation. It's, it's not the word judgment the way we think of it when we talk about final judgment or judgment day. The word here is not condemnation. It's referring to judging, 
deciding, testing. And Peter says that right now is the time, is the season for judging, deciding, testing of the house of God. And fiery testing, refining testing. And this looks back to several Old Testament passages and several ideas that are throughout the entire Bible. One of the first is Psalm 66.10, which says, O God, you have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. A little bit closer to our passage is Zechariah 13.19, where God says that he will put a third of his people into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. But the Old Testament passage we really want to focus in on for First Peter is Malachi 3, 1 through 4. And when you actually turn there for a moment, as we'll spend just a few minutes there in Malachi 3. Malachi 3, 1 through 4, Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, to his house, his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. From Malachi 3. And Peter seems to be drawing on this passage. Malachi says that God will come to his temple and refine his people like gold and silver to purify them and make them suitable to come into his presence to serve and worship him. And see, what you can't miss is that it's God's holiness. God's holiness demands the absolute purity of all that is his and of all that stands in his presence. And today we are the temple of God and his presence is within us. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And then 1 Peter, in our very book, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, Peter describes Christ as a living stone, the cornerstone, rejected by man, but beloved by God. And we too are stones being built up into a house or a temple for his worship. And so, just as Malachi said, so Peter says here, that God must test and refine his house, his temple. He must first separate the true stones from the false stones, those that look strong but are actually will crumble to powder at any weight placed on them, versus the true stones. And then he must purify and refine and strengthen each and every single one of the true stones until each one is pure and perfect, radiant gold and suitable to build his temple, 
And his holiness demands this. His purity and perfection demand this. And this is Peter's point here. This is Peter's point. And this is why it's so important in suffering to remember the end. If God is so holy that he must put his own beloved children through the refining fires of testing, how much more will God's holiness consume like a blazing fire all of those who rebel and reject him? Revelation 18 and 19 describes this when God will finally bring his judgment, his condemning judgment against the wicked. Revelation 18 says, come out of her, my people. That's Babylon, the the fallen world. And he says, her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered. That's to say he's, he's holding on to and he's punishing her for her iniquities. Pay her back double for her deeds and pay her back as she's done to others. And for this reason, her plagues will come upon her in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then Revelation 19.3, and the saints, all of us who are in Christ, will look on and say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then they and we will go into the wedding feast of the Lamb. So remember the end. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God's holiness is purifying and refining us. It is preparing us for the wedding feast of the Lamb. But for the unbeliever, for the disobedient, the rebellious, God's holiness will be a fire that consumes them to destruction and burns unendingly, Like Isaiah 66 says, the righteous will go out, just like we saw in Revelation, and look upon the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against God. Their worm will not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Beloved, God has spared us from this because Christ suffered this wrath in our place. And we've been bought not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And our suffering is not to destroy us, but to refine us. And remember again that our very suffering is evidence that we will not be destroyed with the godless, but instead will rejoice at his return. So insofar as you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice that he may also rejoice at his return. And a funny thing's happened to me when we remember the end, when we remember what we've been spared from. Throughout my Christian life, an interesting thing has happened. There'll be times in my walk where I'm frustrated, grumbling. I'm sure none of you guys have ever been there. You look at your, you know, this person, why, why does Brad Pitt get to look that way and have all that much money, and I'm over here, right? And there's been times in my walk where I've been envious of somebody, and then I hear about somebody walking away from the faith. 
Maybe it was a famous pastor, and we've, we've all got examples of those. Somebody that you thought, I, man, I wish I could be him. I wish I could be in his shoes. And then he walks away from the faith. And immediately, all complaining is gone when you realize the preciousness that we've been given this faith, if it's true and it's real, it's not our own doing. And to remember the end makes all suffering not, not matter when we keep that in view. But also, perhaps there's some of you here tonight that are still in rebellion against God, and maybe you've wandered in off the street, or maybe you've been coming for a while, and you still aren't sure about Christianity. What we'd say to you tonight is, is this is the end of the wicked, and this is the end of, of you and all who are rebelling against God. And so we call you as a church to repent, to trust in Christ, because he died that you could be spared from this and live with him forever. So what do we do with this in conclusion? We've seen that we must recognize the purpose of our suffering, rejoice in the result, repent of sin, and remember the end. Finally, we resolve to obey. We resolve to trust and obey. Verse 19. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When we look at what stands before us, when they would have looked at what stands in front of them, it would have been overwhelming. Even regular suffering is hard. Mockery is hard. It's hard to stand up against, let alone physical suffering. And in all of this, we do not have the strength in and of ourselves to live the Christian life. But God will sustain us. So we look to him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But we look to God to sustain us. Because when we are weak, he is strong. And so we entrust our souls to our faithful creator as we seek to do good in his name. And we must resolve to obey. And in this, Christ is our example. Remember Peter's words in verse 19. Hold them in your mind. But then hear me read 1 Peter 2.21. To this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ is our model, and we endure to the end by looking to him. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and with the pressure because he has in every respect been tested and tried as we have, but without any sin. So, beloved, draw near to his throne of grace in time of need. And when you are weary and beaten down under the race, Look to him. The race will be hard, hard as the fires of affliction, but we will endure by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, thinking very little of the shame, and now is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of God. And this will be our eternity as well if we suffer with him and then we will reign with him. Insofar as we share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice that we may also rejoice at his return. So, beloved, tonight, let us not be surprised at the fires of suffering when they come. And inevitably, they will come if our faith isn't true, if our faith is true. And let us always respond as Peter would have it, by recognizing, rejoicing, repenting, remembering, and resolving. And if you do, then after you have suffered a little while, this God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And it will be worth it. So persevere. And as a closing word, these can be hard truths. So my closing word would be, remember Peter's failures. And perhaps you're here tonight, whether you've been a Christian for just a little time or a long time, and you're discouraged. You're discouraged at how you've lived to this point. And maybe you have many memories of not enduring suffering rightly, of of staying silent, of trying to avoid suffering. And remember that these words were written by the very apostle who denied Christ in front of a lowly servant girl on the night of his arrest. And the same apostle who compromised in Galatia to avoid difficulty doctrinally. So perhaps we've wavered and compromised in the past, but let us today resolve by the power of the Spirit to endure and to suffer faithfully for Christ, and to finish well, just as Peter eventually did. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for your grace that you've called us, you've chosen us, or that we are, we may be exiles, but we are elect exiles, and then you've chosen us to share in this eternal joy not because of anything we've done, but because of your grace, because we were your enemies. So I just pray that you would, throughout the rest of the weekend, continue to open our eyes to these truths, to see the glory and beauty of Christ, and to love him more, and from that love to suffer for him until the day when we see him face to face. We pray in your name. Amen.